Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Ben Allen, in for Scott Lamar. The opioid crisis is getting worse in many parts of the mid-state. Fatal heroin overdoses have been increasing in York and Cumberland counties, in some cases almost double last year's total at this time. Thursday, WITF is hosting a public forum at the Public Media Center. On this very topic, we're calling it the Mid-State's Opioid Crisis, Where Are We Now? We'll be joined by experts from the medical community, people in recovery, others in law enforcement, and more. But today, we start our conversation. Our guest, Dr. Sarah Kawasaki, she's Director of Addiction Services with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Dr. Kawasaki, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And Matthew Toth, he's in recovery himself. He's been living in the Mid-State for the past 12 years on and off. Matthew, thanks for being here. Thanks. And we're joined by uh, Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. He has seen many of these cases come through his office. DA Stedman, thanks for being here. Good morning. All right, so let's first start with the current status of uh, the opioid crisis, and I'll kind of just put this to the entire panel. What are you seeing right now? What are, what are, what's going on uh, when it comes to the opioid crisis in central Pennsylvania? So I can start. Um, I am so glad that we're here this morning to discuss this. Deaths from opiate use disorder have reached such astronomic proportions that we are actually at the level of the peak of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in terms of numbers of people who are dying from this. Um, So it's critical that we talk about the treatments that work because they've been around for a long time and they're very effective. Um, I can tell you that there are different modalities of treatment and different kinds of treatment and different results from each, that there is inpatient detox programs. There are medications that are used, such as methadone, buprenorphine, which is uh, more known as Suboxone, but there are other names, and extended release naltrexone, which is um, a new medicine and the newest medicine on the market for it. Um, When we're looking at lowering numbers in the state of Pennsylvania, each day, I believe the statistic is thrown around a lot. There are 10 deaths from uh, opiate use disorder um, in the state of Pennsylvania. So it's critical that we try to lower this number. Um, For detox programs, um, which is basically 28-day inpatient programs that take people off of medicine entirely, the likelihood that a person is going to stay away from their drug use at six months is one out of 10 people. So one in 10 times a person will be successful at staying away from drugs if they go through detox and detox alone. If a person is in counseling, may have gone through detox and then gets their treatment supplemented by a maintenance medication such as methadone, their likelihood of staying away from heroin increases dramatically to seven and a half in 10 at six months. So that is at least a seven times increase in likelihood that they would stay away from those drugs. If you have counseling plus buprenorphine or suboxone, the likelihood they would stay away from those drugs of choice is five and a half out of 10. So again, we're talking five times as likely as um, just doing detox and counseling without any medication assisted treatment. Um, This is pretty critical. And an added benefit, too, is that um, with methadone, the rearrest rates, if you've previously been arrested, drop dramatically. And 
If you're on both buprenorphine or methadone, either or, the rate of infectious disease, such as HIV, hepatitis C, and also hospitalizations for heart infections, bone infections, things that can really drive up costs of health care go down dramatically. So District Attorney, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Kawasaki talked a little bit about the different uh, options in terms of treatment. Your guys, uh, your staff has seen uh, a lot uh, of this. Um, what exactly are you seeing in terms of uh, the drugs coming through and the cases that you're dealing with right now in Lancaster County? Well, um, it's it's really, we've never seen the levels that we've, we're seeing now, and that's even compared to last year. We're twice the rate uh, that we were in 2016, and 2016 was about four times the rate of 2014. So or, you know, it, it is something that's so important to talk about and do appreciate the opportunity to come here today and, and you're having the public forum because there's no one aspect. Uh, government, uh, law enforcement is not going to solve this alone. We can't arrest our way out of this problem. Uh, but there's a, there's a place for it. Uh, but, but it's going to take all aspects of our, of our society to, to come together to turn this around. The, uh, the, the sad reality of it is it's getting worse. Uh, I did anticipate as we um, finally got the prescription drug database, one of the last states to do that, that would you know restrict some of the opioid prescriptions, um, that things were going to get worse here, and they are getting worse. That happened in Ohio when they did that as well. Right, right. And, and so it's not a surprise to me. I think the thing that, that we're doing is just it is consuming our, our law enforcement resources uh, like never before. Our drug task force is, is now predominantly working on really nothing but heroin cases. And, of course, even more dangerous is they're, they're, they're mixing it with fentanyl. And, and we've even had in Pennsylvania some of the car fentanyl, not, not in Lancaster, but in other parts of the state. And, and that's so dangerous. And, and just recently we had somebody uh, was selling purported heroin. It was straight fentanyl. Hmm. And, and people are going to absolutely die from that. And, and, and there's a risk to, to the, your first responders, to everybody dealing with those individuals when you come to the scene. And let's uh, just clear up fentanyl. That's 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine and carfentanil, which is most commonly used as an elephant tranquilizer. Um, that's, uh, that is, is something that has been seen, I believe, in uh, the western part of the state. Uh, hasn't made its way to the mid-state quite yet. So in terms of the the the... the you know, heroin being the, the main issue, but uh, you mentioned, D.A. Stedman, that, that uh, fentanyl has become a, a bigger issue that, that you guys are seeing. Yeah, I mean, some typically what we had seen, and it was laced in there, and people, and there are people that know more than, than I do about it, but, but the, the addicts are, all, are constantly seeking to get a higher high, and they, as they become accustomed to whatever their, their drug of choice is, they constantly want to... Uh, uh, recreate that first time they took that drug and how they felt and, and I know you know got Matthew here and he's going to talk about it uh, and from his experience but obviously I hear this and, and, and you know, why do you change from this drug to that drug because they get used to it and then you're always looking for more so fentanyl as you mentioned is way more powerful than heroin so as they get used to heroin they're looking for that new challenge and now that we have Narcan out there and we're able to save these people uh, in some sense it might be emboldening some people to take more risks um, because they know this, and sometimes it's right there with them. Uh, so it's, I support Narcan. We got it through our whole, our, our county, all the police departments. You know, I obtained a, a grant to get that from the, for them and stuff. But there's some, some other aspects of, of that use as well, which, which some unintended consequences of people are taking more risks, and, and sometimes people die. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with Dr. Sarah Kawasaki. She's Director of Addiction Services with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, Matthew Toth, who's in recovery, and Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. This show is part of our Transforming Health Project here at WITF. From policy to personal choices, we've been taking a comprehensive look at health care. It's online at transforminghealth.org, and it's supported by Penn State Health and WellSpan Health. Matthew, wanted to get a little bit to, to your story. So kind of lay out... A, how you've reached this point. Okay. Um, hey, guys. My, I'm Matthew. I'm, <laughs> I'm a sober alcoholic and drug addict today, and it feels pretty awesome. Uh, blessed to be on this radio show today. Um, I'm very familiar with, with the street drugs. Um, <clears throat> I was prescribed my... I started off drinking alcoholically since day one. I mean, I knew as soon as the alcohol hit my system, I knew that I was different. I just basically... It gave me a sense of relief that uh, I've never felt before, and and I was different at the fact that when it was gone, my first thought was, when am I, gonna, you know, when are we going to do this again? How do I get more? And it started right off the bat with drinking. Um, I had a knee injury. Uh, I was about 19 years old. I had a knee injury. I was prescribed my first opiates, and uh, you know, I share this a lot. But it, the bottle said, you know, these these pills will be intensified with the effects of alcohol. And, uh, you know, to me, that sounded awesome. And, uh, and I, I mixed them automatically. Then I heard that if you chew them, they hit you faster. If you snort them, they hit you even quicker. And, and I was off to the races. And, and from 19 years old on, um, I was constantly seeking that high. I, I moved on to other harder drugs. And uh, to be quite honest, I, you know, I have a background in sales. I learned to use the gift of gab to manipulate doctors. I, I made friends with dentists and, and psychiatrists. I had prescriptions being written to me from friends that were doctors and and I learned to con and manipulate doctors you know at the hospital level with injuries I mean I faked injuries I went in and and just shared the story you know a, a few months before I got sober I actually went into a hospital I was withdrawing so bad I needed the drug I compare that that next high when I was in active addiction like I would have rather gotten high than take my next breath of air that's how important it was to me. When the body goes into withdrawal, thoughts of, of, of robbing pharmacies, setting up drug dealers, it's just, it was my reality. Uh, so I went through a long, many years of, of literally finding ways to do this. It led me to lying, cheating, stealing, uh, you know. And then I'm buying them on the street. I'm buying them on the black market. I'm getting them prescribed to me through through real doctors, real physicians. I mean, I had them coming from every angle. And then you guys brought up, the, you know, the fentanyl. I attend 12-step meetings daily. Uh, you know, I've been... My sobriety date is July 17th of 2016. Uh, every, I, I've probably attended over 300 meetings in the last 250 days or whatever that is. So I see people come in and off the streets all the time they they come in we try to plant the seed and say this is a better way of life one guy that i just spoke to he said he just got out of rehab he was thought he was doing heroin they did a toxicology on him and they found out there was no heroin at all it was all straight fentanyl i mean this guy's lucky to be alive but towards the bitter end of my what i call gift of desperation i was actually in atlanta I was taking about 200 milligrams a day of Percocets, uh, Xanax. I was drinking in the morning. I was doing high-level cocaine and smoking crack, and this was a repeated cycle for me. I was literally like a walking zombie. I, I had um, health insurance still in Pennsylvania. I, I ended up getting in touch with some people here, and I said, if I don't get sober, I'm going to die. 
or, and and I came back to Pennsylvania. I withdrew myself from the from this le- massive level massive amount of drugs that I was doing, and continued to drink for a few weeks. And I went into to a twelve step AA meeting, and I, I, I a gentleman there was like, you know, hey guy, we need to get you into rehab. So I, I wasn't ready to go to rehab yet because I just wasn't really ready to surrender yet. I had some things to take care of, and uh, but I promised him I'd come back to the meetings every day. So I got sober for, I had about almost a month, and then I, the guy came to me and he said, Matt, you, I highly recommend you still go to a rehab. And I said, well, I'm not feeling good, I'm doing okay, and, and it's not my first rehab, so I know what the 12, I know what the rehabs are like. Um, I actually had trouble getting into a rehab. I was about two weeks sober. I called up all these rehabs. I said, please get me in. I'm on the verge of relapse, and I'm not going to make it. And they said, we need you to go down to Lancaster, the drug and alcohol department, get some assessments. We need to know your drug history. I'm like, so you're telling me that if I go shoot heroin today, you will take me in? And they said, off the record, yes. Uh, I didn't pick up. I didn't pick up. I don't know how I fought through those first few weeks. Uh, I eventually was accepted. I did the drug and alcohol assessments. Naturally, I qualified, and I was accepted into Valley Forge Medical Center. I did 28 days. I came out right back to my meetings, and I dove into basically recovery. I embraced recovery. Uh, but you know, I like to share that, that the seed of recovery was planted in me about 12 years ago when I went to my first rehab. I was 25 years old. I had delirium tremens from, from uh, obsess- excessive alcohol use. I was on high-level opiates, Xanax. I wasn't ready to get sober yet. So 25, right, I go to my first 28-day treatment center. I come out. I go to meetings for a month. I relapse, get a DUI. My second DUI out of my rehab, I resigned from a company, and for the next 12 years, I drank and drugged harder than I ever imagined I would because of the shame and guilt of, of, you know what, I thought, why would God do this to me? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so broke, I'm never going to be able to get sober. So I gave up on sobriety. And uh, you know, years later, when I came down to where I was literally going to die, I said, let me give this recovery thing one more shot. And the guy said to me, you know, when you're ready to surrender, you're willing to do anything at all costs to get sober. And that's what I've been doing one day at a time. So. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a compelling story and an important one to hear. And uh, we'll, we'll get uh, more of Matthew's story in just a second. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Welcome back to Smart Talk as we continue the conversation about the opiate epidemic and where we are now. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And coming up this Thursday, we're hosting a public forum on this topic here at the WITF Public Media Center. We'd love to see you there. We'll have a panel discussion, stories from people who have been affected by the crisis, and so much more. It's all free, and it's Thursday at 6 p.m. You can find more details and RSVP at transforminghealth.org. And Matthew, you were telling your story a little bit. And one thing that I want to key in on, because it's uh, it's always a good opportunity to kind of educate people. You said there was a point where you didn't feel like you were ready. You weren't ready to go into treatment, weren't ready to recover. How did you know you weren't ready, and what did it take to get you ready? 
Sure. Good question. Uh, well, like I said, you know, 25 years old, uh, my family had a, a, a professional intervention, uh, just like you see on the show intervention. They, it might, my mom teamed up with my employer. They intervened and they said, you know, we're worried about you. We're concerned. Will you go to rehab? I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And I did it to please all of them. Um, at that point, I wasn't willing to admit that the great obsession of the addict is to control the use. You know, if there was no negative consequences to my drug use, I would probably still be doing drugs right now. Like, let's just be honest. But but the problem is the drug use gets so painful and then the negative consequences start to hit you. I'm, I'm a habitual DUI offender. Uh, you know, I've been arrested for possession of marijuana. I sold a large quantity. I should be in prison for life if we did what what you know with the incarceration thing that we do now i should i should not be sitting here uh so i go to my first treatment and i i just i was like okay well you know there's these people they're getting sober and they seem pretty happy but i'm like the thought of never drinking or doing drugs again seems so far off so when i looked at it like it was like so you mean I'm never going to be able to go on a vacation and have a beer with my buddies again i'm never going to be able to to smoke a joint again like i wouldn't accept that i could not touch one substance like I can't stop once I put this stuff in my body not one beer not one not one pill I need more and more and more and next thing you know I'm hooked I'm chemically dependent again and now I need another treatment center so I'm in treatment I come out and I remember the day I relapsed I, 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 I contemplated just having a beer at this point I said maybe it's just the drugs that's my problem let me stop that I won't drink the hard liquor anymore I'll switch to beer I'll, I, I, my obsession to control you know so I relapse and I get a DUI that that very night I relapse and uh, I just remember at that point I was like okay well recovery is working for for you guys but I'm just too far gone I guess and I gave up but there's I, there's a there's a period over that this 12 year span that I call my mad scientist years I, I I continued to study and research addiction and alcoholism I continued to read books I continued to go in and out of meetings because I thought I was gonna find the answer through intellect I thought I was gonna find an answer through 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 my studies and in the end you know of course we know that abstinence for me is the only amps answer uh, but you know 12 years later after my drinking and drug use progressed so bad and took me to places I would have never imagined you know I finally just decided to 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 give it a shot again but that it's a good example of how like the seed was planted in me 12 years ago I needed to drink and drug for 12 more years and get more pain uh, I always say that just like the tolerance of a drug you know it gets higher and you need more and you don't feel that first feeling again my tolerance of pain became so great I'll never go to jail why well, did that I'll never go to a rehab why well, did that okay well now I just won't go to jail again I did that again I won't go to multiple you know treatment centers and it just my tolerance for pain kept getting higher and higher and it just became a normal institutionalized lifestyle for me uh, until I like I said I just finally was like okay Show me what to do, guys. Yeah, and Dr. Kawasaki, how typical is Matthew's story? I think that it is typical in some respects and extremely special in others. Um, it is. You've heard one story. You've heard them all. Or you've heard one story. You've heard one story. That's is, exactly is what people right. say, right? Yeah. And um, for him, you know, he's a tenacious, remarkable person who has been through a lot and has come out on the other side, and it's rare to do that you know as we said detoxes 
don't work so well. He failed at least one that he talked about and um, did really well with the next. And this idea of readiness is really critical to that, I think, that um, for the second one, something clicked and he was ready at that point to accept counseling. I think that readiness is both important um, but is not essential to staying alive. Um, I think for many other substance use disorders, um, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines, which includes a class of medicines known as Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Valium, um, detoxes are really critical um, because you can get somebody out of the danger zone because you can die when you're in withdrawal from those uh, substances. But for um, for this person, um, for, for you, Matthew, you know, for anybody with opiate use disorder, I am deeply concerned that somebody can die long before they reach readiness. Yeah, you have been suffering most of your life. Mm. Um, and I think that especially with fentanyl on the street, um, somebody can go through a journey to readiness um, that can end abruptly before they reach there. Mm. And where medications can help is um, keeping people alive, keeping people away from that craving that will get them back on the street and potentially overdosing. And um, it, it shouldn't be alone. It shouldn't be in a vacuum. It needs to be with counseling. But I think people are at varying stages of accepting counseling, and they don't have to be at varying stages of accepting medication. DA statement. You encounter a case like Matthew's. How, how would you handle that, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, and how do you handle it now? Well, I think just to, just to back up for for a minute, I think his story, I would agree, is actually pretty rare, and most of them aren't going to survive 12 years yeah. uh, like this. So, you know, what, and it, they all have the same kind of feeling, one more, just one more, just one more. Unfortunately, they don't make it, and, and he's courageous and resilient. A, a lot of other times we have other, you know, unfortunately it ends up in the morgue. And, and I think there's a couple things that he mentioned that are important to think about, and, and if, so we appreciate the scope of this. It's not just him that's going through this. So he's committing, you know, what he's doing to himself. His family's supportive, obviously tried to do something. They're getting ripped apart behind the scenes as well, trying to do that. All his friends, anybody that would try to help. And the other thing he mentioned was DUIs. And we talk about DUIs in, in, in this case, in Matthew's case. You know, he survived. There's no, no damage to anybody else. I meet constantly the, the parents and family members of people who are killed by uh, a somebody who was under the influence of now often more often than ever uh, of heroin that crossed over the center line and killed their loved one. So they're, you know, beyond the devastation and risk of, of life to the individual who's, who's using, we've got this other aspect that, that I have to deal with. And, and I'm tired, quite frankly, of meeting those parents and, and having to go back to Harrisburg and talk about what we need to do. So this is such a, the scope of the problem is enormous. And Compared to 10 years ago, we didn't, you know, I, when I started 25 years ago, you could count the number of heroin uh, uh, DUIs on one hand per year. Now, I think two, last year was over 600. That's just in Lancaster, and that's just the ones we caught and, and arrested. So there's a lot more out there going on, and, and it's a risk to every one of us who is out there on the road and our family and our, you know, our children in their cars with us. And, it, and it's, it's something that doesn't get talked a lot about, but... They're, they're, you know, you can't turn around. The other thing, like I said, is the family members and, and the consequences to them. So 
The penalties, the difference is now for us, not the user, but the drug dealer, the dealer who is selling these poisons, who's making their living off of profit, off of killing people, quite frankly, killing people. Um, we no longer have the mandatory sentencing on them, so it's, it's more difficult for us to get meaningful sentences on, on the dealers. Um, and, and there's an aspect that, you know, for me, we, we, have, we have in a situation where heroin's cheaper than ever before, they're, they're, it's easier for them to get. They've got quite a market. They're selling. They're making profits on, on other people's, quite frankly, death. And, and, and they don't care. In fact, you know, what I hear from my drug task force is that when people die from the particular batch that they've sold, that's when they get busy because the addicts actually are drawn to that. It, it's counterintuitive, but they're actually drawn to it, and, and that particular dealer can sell more. Mm. So... Um, the difference is we, we don't have the penalties on the dealers that we did before. I think there's certainly more awareness, uh, the treatment professionals, and I think there's a, just doing this panel is something we wouldn't have had 10 years ago right. with, with somebody that's a you know, recovering treatment professional, law enforcement. I think that's very good. I think there's a great awareness of the scope of the problem. But the other thing for me that I've, that I've come to learn and just listen to Matthew again is we, and I don't know what the answer is, and there's there's people that to the, that know more than I do, but what, I, what I've become aware of is it takes about 270 days for the brain of an addict to just even have a biological chance to unwire. And and when we have these short-term rehabs, what I'm hearing over and over again is we're setting these people up for failure. And, and here, here's your here's your gold star. Go out into the street. You're fine after your 15, 30-day, whatever's covered by the insurance company. And, and we need to change our way of thinking here. And I think you've heard that from, from both the other guests here. But what we need to do is understand this is this is not going to go away in, in 15 days. And, and then Matthew wants to say something. So I just I want to say one thing. You know, the, I, want, I want people to understand the power that the addiction had over me. So... I had what was almost, it was been my third DUI. I did seven, seven, seven and a half months in York County Prison. And I had seven months to sit long and hard and think about my life, right? And I remember the day my girlfriend picked me up after I was released from prison. I had probation. I had a Intoxilock on, machine on my vehicle. And I remember the gates opening and I'm released. And my girlfriend says, you know, you want to go get a steak dinner? You want to go get a new pair of shoes? And my, my mind said, no, I want to go drink and get high. I don't have to meet my probation officer till Monday. I have two free days to get good and licked. And, and I did that. And I almost went back to jail. Um, and that's just, I, I need to express that because those seven months I had to think about how I'm going to change my life. The first thing with, because I had no treatment, I had no recovery program. I had no sober support at that point. I'm released back into the wild. And the one thing I wanted was a drink and a drug. And it's not, I mean, and Dr. Kawasaki can talk more to the science behind this or the biology behind this, but you're not making a personal choice. You, your addiction has overtaken your your body and your your decision making to the point where that that is all that you're thinking about that's right addiction is a brain disease and i think it's important at this point that we clearly define the difference between addiction and dependence a lot of the issue of access to the medications that help people stay away from heroin has to do with stigma of those medicines. People think that they're trading in one addiction for another. But the reality is, is that there's a big difference between addiction and dependence. Addiction is the disease that Matthew so beautifully illustrated, so devastatingly illustrated, that um, it took over his entire life. It was something that, it, it was everything that he could do to get his next fix. 
being um, spending inordinate amount of time trying to uh, coordinate, gather the money, figure out the right contacts, um, figure out who he had to lie, cheat, steal from. Um, and this may not have been his case, but certainly in other people's cases, they would have to sell their body. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, they'd break the law. And um, these things are uh, symptoms of addiction. Now, when you start on a medication like methadone or buprenorphine, you develop a dependence on the medicine. And the difference between addiction and dependence is for dependence, if you were to stop the medicine, your body would go into withdrawal. You would know that you were not taking that medicine anymore. And it applies to narcotics, but not only narcotics. It also applies to other medicines. Some people take steroids for inflammatory conditions. Your body can become dependent on steroids if you were to stop taking that suddenly. To a lesser extent, people who are on medications for diabetes and high blood pressure are also dependent on those medicines. If they were to stop those medicines, they wouldn't necessarily feel withdrawal. However, you'd be sure that they would be seen in an emergency room with complications from those illnesses if they weren't taking the medicines their body needed to treat that condition. So you're taking somebody who previously was a hunter-gatherer, kind of out there in the world, ripping and running and trying to get their fix, and you're turning them into somebody who knows exactly how much medicine they're going to get, exactly who from, not breaking the law, knowing exactly how it's going to make them feel, and it's regular. And it's also accompanied by lots of other services that can help them stay away from um, from using those drugs that got them into trouble in the first place. And that's a huge um, win in terms of keeping people out of those circles that can get them into trouble. Ten years ago, this was really an inner city problem. Um, and it, you know, longer than that, much longer than that. Um, it has been entrenched in the inner cities for several decades. And at that time, it was considered a criminal justice problem. Um, people were put in prison, and that was where a lot of um, drug treatment happened, unfortunately. Now that it's really taken a hold in the suburban and rural communities, a lot of people are starting to talk about it like the public health problem it really is. Um, and we need to work together with law enforcement and um, other public health officials and public officials to get people access to the treatment they need. And there are several programs around the country that are currently doing just this. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. We're talking with Dr. Sarah Kawasaki. She's Director of Addiction Services with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, Matthew Toth, who is in recovery, and Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. And just a reminder, coming up this Thursday, we're hosting a public forum on this topic here at the WITF Public Media Center. We'd love to see you there. We'll have a panel discussion, more of these stories, and much, much more. It's all free. It's Thursday at 6 p.m. More details all at transforminghealth.org. Want to go to a caller? Joe from Franklin County is on the line. Joe, you're on Smart Talk. Joe, are you there? All right. Well, let's see. So Joe was going to ask, and I'll put this to uh, Dr. Kawasaki. He wanted the panel to address the idea of an intervention strategy that uses exercise as a way to treat opioid addiction. So I'd be curious. So, so I think that exercise is, um, can do a lot 
for the body. Um, it can release natural endorphins, which include natural opioids that the body makes. Um, and it can certainly give schedule to a person who has not had a whole lot of structure in their life. Um, as a sole form of treatment, it is really inadequate. Um, I, you know, I think that it should be combined with a lot of things, um, with counseling, with medication, um, with regular doctor's visits, um, and certainly whatever other support um, a person might need. And then another caller, we've got Heather from Lingolstown on the line. Let's see if this one will work. Heather, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, the, I ha <clears throat> I'm sorry. I have a hard time having compassion for people that become addicted. I grew up in a drug-infested environment. I grew up with alcoholics and addicts. And as I grew up, I said I didn't want those things in my life. And I hear a lot of time where people say, well, it's not a choice, like, no, you chose. I choose to stay away from people that do those things. When I'm having a bad day, I choose not to drink wine. I'm like, no, I choose to only have two glasses of wine when I'm out with friends. I, I have a hard time when I have to go to the doctor now, and I am forced to take a drug test that I have to pay for out of my own pocket because other people can't control themselves. It's not fair. I shouldn't be putting, put in that position where I'm basically being accused of being an addict or selling my drugs that I'm legally prescribed to take, have been taken for seven years because other people, you know, have a, a disease and now it's in their brain. Well, it's in my brain, too, and I chose not to do those things. Matthew, I'll, I'll, yeah, Matthew, I'll put that, that question to you, and thanks for the call, Heather. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I'll agree that it's it's a shame that Heather has to, to, to feel that she's accused of being a drug addict. But, you know, if you take a look at the, the, the level of this epidemic, there has to be some sort of control with the, with the opiates. Um, you know, I just shared that I conned and manipulated doctors and, and, and almost didn't make it. But as far as the choice, you know, at some point along the line, just like any other normal person, I decided to, to have a drink. And I decided to to give you know uh, uh, something else uh, a shot, and and something inside of me, you know, made me want to have more of that substance. I did not say when I was growing up, when I grow up, I want to be a drug addict. I want to steal from my mother. I want to commit crimes and drive drunk. I did not want to do those things. You know, I I I I care very dearly about people in, in the community and today I'm able to do the do do good because I'm sober but the power of choice I have that back now because I went through a rigorous program I continue to go through a rigorous program of, of sobriety and recovery but it, it, prior to this you know there's something inside of my brain uh, you know as an addict like, you know, she mentioned it was a brain disorder. Something inside of me, when I have a substance, you know, when I have a cup of coffee, I, I need more coffee. When I have a bag of M&Ms, there's something inside of me that makes me eat the whole bag. I have an addictive personality trait that affects not just drinking drugs. I obsess about the gym now. I obsess about you know, my level of caffeine intake. I obsess about my shoes being clean. There's something inside of me where the power of choice, it's not so much the moral deficiency. It's not like, oh, I'm going to wake up today and decide not to do this. So I don't know if that answers or helps. but I, I think it's important to understand there's a couple different paths that have gotten us to this epidemic level. 
and and one is I think what Heather's talking about, which is which is somebody as a gateway, and they just start experimenting for fun, and they rationalize their decisions, and they just start using things, and and that's it. And I think you know those are the, her comments. I think I understand more from from that path, that more traditional path, a person that's just choosing to abuse. But really, the epidemic levels we've gotten to a lot of the people. They they get to become a heroin addict because they have a knee injury, or they went to the dentist and they get, were given Percocet, and they weren't looking for anything. These are people from all walks of life, from you know the maybe the best parents, whatever, all across the state, rural, urban, suburban, and they become. And, and you know maybe she could talk about it a little bit more. But there's a genetic predisposition to some of these addictions, so they're exposed to this. Once the prescription cuts off. Heroin's cheaper and more accessible than the Percocet and the Vicodin that they were using, so they turned to that, and that's really what has taken us to the tremendous levels that we've seen: is the exposure, the overprescription of these painkillers to many people who weren't doing anything other than just conducting their day-to-day life. And, and I think there's, it's important to make that distinction. Now, once you become addicted, you're dealing with the same issues, and we have to deal with it. But there's more of a role for law enforcement in one, and I think, but ultimately, law enforcement has to tie in with treatment because all these people are going to come back on the streets, and we've got to do better as far as finding long-term answers, regardless of which path they took. I'm not interested in labels on, on people. I think that there's, there's much less sympathy for, for certain aspects of people just say, hey, I just want to do heroin for fun, as opposed to somebody that went in for knee surgery and, and became addicted as a result of that. Got to squeeze a break in here, but Dr. <clears throat> Kawasaki will get to the biology behind uh, the, the addictive personality, as, as Matthew puts it, in just a second. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. Oh, welcome back to Smart Talk as we continue the conversation about the opioid epidemic and where we are now. We welcome your questions and comments. Call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number, 800 729 7532. And we would encourage you to get that phone call in now. Usually we do get a burst of phone calls right before the end, and we don't have a chance to get to them. So if you want to comment or question, uh, now is the time uh, to call. And a reminder, coming up this Thursday, we're hosting a public forum on this topic here at the WITF Public Media Center. We would love to see you there. We'll have a panel discussion, stories from people who have been affected by the crisis, and more. It's all free, and it's Thursday at 6 p.m. Find more details at RSVP at transforminghealth.org. So, Dr. Kawasaki, we're talking about the addictive personality uh, part of this, and uh, wh- what is the what is the science behind that? Well, I I wanted to address um, our last caller um, for for a second that she um, understandably feels personally attacked for uh, the medications that she needs and feels that she is unnecessarily persecuted by her doctor. And I would say, even though this feels personal, it is not personal. The reality is, is since 1999, opiate prescriptions have quadrupled. I think that has a lot to do with the um, uh, obsession of patient satisfaction scores, pain is the fifth vital sign, People, doctors feeling pressure from patients to really please them. Um, And this has been a big problem. Also, the makers of OxyContin were knowingly duplicitous to uh, physicians and telling them that their medicine wasn't habit-forming when, in fact, it was. The reality is also is where the most opioid prescriptions were prescribed, 
the most overdoses started to occur. So they are co-located. So in other words, wherever opioid prescriptions were prescribed the most, the most people died. And that does not necessarily implicate the people who were prescribed, but maybe people who were in the same house. Maybe there were people across the street. Maybe, you know, they they gave some medicines away. Um, and, you know, getting stopped off of those medicines suddenly by doctors feeling the push to not write them anymore pushed a lot of people who had become dependent on these prescriptions to go to heroin. So it's a big problem, and ultimately what we're talking about is people dying from this problem. And if your doctor wants to make sure that you're taking the medicine by checking a urine drug screen, um, then um, that is their right, and it's really for your own safety. It's not um, necessarily for uh, to as, as suspicion, um, and that's, that's that. Um, you know... I think that as a society, we haven't fully wrapped our arms around opiate use disorder. I think that we're all struggling on whether this illness is a disease or a sin. But ultimately, if we are going to be most concerned with keeping people alive, we have to consider it a disease and treat it with the evidence that we have from the medications that are available that have been around for decades. District Attorney, how do you kind of walk that balance uh, as someone in the law enforcement community d- determining, you know, whether someone is or, or do you do you even, you know, how do you factor that in, whether someone is acting because, you know, they have this disease or uh, whether they're acting because of a profit motivation? Well, if, so if you're talking about a profit motivation, you're talking about the predator dealer. Right, I mean, these people, right. uh, these are the, their philosophy is, let's sell to kids at schools because we're going to have a customer for life. That's that's what their philosophy is. So I think that's completely different. Those are the people that, that you know, the justice system needs to come down on. It needs to come down on them hard. And, and you know, just taking, uh, doing search warrants, arresting them, taking doses off the street. I think last year, I think we took 40,000 doses of heroin off of Lancaster streets. So that's each one of them could have killed somebody and, and or turned somebody into 12 years of, of addiction or, um, you know, probably ended up in the morgue or what have you. So we'll come after those people really hard. And those are the people we need law enforcement need to focus on. I think our other role with with people like like Matthew, it comes down to are they are they hurting somebody else's rights? So in other words, are they stealing from somebody? Uh, we had a case not so long ago where somebody was an addict and left the door open in, in the restaurant um, at night so that her addict, addict boyfriend and others could come in and steal everything from the business. That business went out of business in six months because of it. So we have a, we now have a, a crime consequence to that that we have to deal with. And, of course, the DUIs I talked about already, those are a little bit different. We don't lock up somebody for just being an addict, just somebody using marijuana or just using heroin. They don't go to jail. Um, I think people people are surprised that, that we have trouble sometimes getting drug dealers go to jail. Uh, but we're certainly not locking them up. Now, sometimes uh, an arrest and, and incarceration is the only thing that's going to save their life. That's not a long-term answer, but maybe it gives them the short-term break. I mean, one of the panels I've done with another uh, person that's in recovery, he said he sat there in, I think it was Dauphin County Prison, and was told either you're going to state prison or you're going into inpatient rehab. And he went inpatient rehab, and now he's a, he's a treatment uh, professional and, and doing that. And that was forced upon him. Another one told me he did 12 years in state prison, 10, 12 years. He said he needed every one of those years before he was ready to come out. So I don't know what that answer is. That's where we try to work with the drug treatment court that we have. We have drug courts. We try to work with the defense attorneys. I'd really like to, you know, we have an adversarial system of justice, but in many ways I'd love to just sit around and have a panel discussion with a defense attorney, the defendant, the judge 
all in the same room, like, what's the best plan for you? I mean, I, my goal isn't to lock anybody out I and mean, put us out of business. But there are certain people we have to, and what we try to do is, is find that right balance. You know, which is the predator drug dealer? Who's somebody that we can help steer into into a recovery plan? You know, who's somebody that I mean, we we divert most of our first time offenders really if they if they complete it they don't they don't even have a record. Not only do they not go to jail, they typically don't have a record. You know, I don't know what the answer is, um, but we'll, we have to work with everybody, not in isolation. All the professionals, all the treatment courts, all the justice system with a defense attorney, and some defense attorneys are, are more forward with us than others and say this person's got a heroin addiction. Some others will say, hey, I can get away with this on a technicality. And, and they're not doing anything wrong, but they get the person out on the street, that person could die the next day because, because they're using. So it's a, these are difficult challenges for everybody involved um, through all aspects of the system. Got, a, got an email here from Denny who actually has a, a compliment for the Lancaster County system. He says he's a father of an addict in recovery with five months of sobriety. Uh, that that uh, addict in recovery attended Karen for 28 days where the family education was a key component in understanding this disease. Aftercare is also important and helping my loved one learning how to survive in a world filled with temptation. The Lancaster County Courts were great and respectful with my loved one, supporting his recovery path by not implementing judicial punishments that would get in the way of his recovery. Thank you. So there are positive stories out there. There are stories of recovery, just like Matthew's uh, here. I want to go to another call. This is uh, Lenore in Lancaster. And uh, Lenore, you are on Smart Talk. Hi, um, thank you. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'm grateful to your panelists. Um, I'm calling to try to complicate the conversation a little bit about um, about the brain chemistry idea, and I'm just wondering if you could talk to um, the social conditions from a public health perspective of why um, sometimes um, access turns into addiction and why into a whole community and why sometimes it doesn't. Um, and also, uh, if you could comment to the disparities in the conversation around um, when African-American communities are predominantly hit with this, this, this addiction um, versus when predominantly white communities are hit. Thank you. Who wants to take that one first? And Lenore, thanks for your call. So as I had alluded to before, um, this heroin and opiate addiction has not been a new problem in the inner cities. Um, it's been there for decades, entrenched. And at that time, it was a criminal justice problem. So when it was predominantly African-Americans, they were put in prison. Um, and now that it has um, spread to suburban and rural communities, um, it appears that more people are willing to take a different approach. Um, and I'm glad we're finally waking up to that, um, but it is an unfortunate um, reality that um, you know we are uh, looking at um, now more appropriate treatments that, than prison um, to help with, with people. Um, in terms of who is going to misuse opiate medicines um, when they are given them for, uh, for pain or for surgery um, versus who is not. I mean, that's a roll of the dice. And I think that um, the Center for Disease Control has put out um, good guidelines in limiting the amount of uh, opiate prescribing physicians should do from the ERs, from the doctor's offices, um, at the start of that to try to minimize um, those those uh, those uh, complications of getting those prescriptions. 
It's hard to believe here, but we have just about three minutes left in this conversation. I want to give each of you a chance to um, to, to offer some, some final thoughts. So uh, I guess I'll start uh, with Lancaster County uh, District Attorney uh, Craig Stedman. How, how do you move forward from this um, as this crisis continues to to create uh, problems here in uh, central Pennsylvania? I think that the, the scope of the problem is so enormous that we've just got to do things differently. I think we're, we're at a place in Pennsylvania now where we've conquered sort of, I'd say, awareness. We're, we're doing more of these public awareness things, but we need to take some concrete steps going forward. I mean, our EMTs, are, their resources are so drained. Our, our medical professionals are overwhelmed. Our justice system's being overwhelmed. And, and we need to branch out and make sure that we're, we're using talking to the business community. Education, prevention is always better than anything. I think we're coming together, the medical community and, the, and, and is coming together as far as pre- cutting back on the prescriptions. Um, um, we need to, again, look at, I think, more of the long-term uh, treatment solutions as opposed to the short-term, just in-and-out, revolving-door type program. I mean, we're it's important that we're all at the table and that we're all sitting there working together. You know, I don't know exactly what the, the, the answer is. I wish I did. I know we're handing out um, drug uh, uh, prescription drug right. boxes, lock boxes that the people can can put in their houses and they know if someone's stealing from them, it's something tangible. But that's not going to be the end of it. Um, and, and just to get harken back to that, the previous caller real quick, this this is everywhere. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your gender. It doesn't matter what your religion. It's killing everybody. And and not only that, it's you know even the unborn. I mean, the the newborns are, are suffering because we've had now parents who are overdosing, and kids are dying from starvation because the parents have died from overdose. So this is just it, it's not it's not it's everywhere. The scope is so enormous. So I, I I wish I could come to you and say you know here's the solution. I think one thing that I've heard that might be a, a good problem or a good uh, step forward. We have the ability for a family to do involuntary commitment. Um, that we can do that if somebody's suicidal. But we, but to me, you know, the family members say to me, and I've talked to the mothers, they say, I know my kid was suicidal in the sense that they keep using heroin. They don't want to die, but they're going to die. And, and, you know, that might be something we could explore in Pennsylvania as far as some kind of ability to do that. But then it all comes down to resources and treatment. And I'm nodding my head in agreement <laughs> with you. Um, and and, and yeah. um, just about 30 yeah. seconds, Matthew, uh, just uh, your final thoughts. Uh, sure. You know, recovery talks about two things being a core component. One is ego deflation, and the second thing is, is finding the, the core cause or the core root of what happened before the drugs and alcohol and that's what my program of recovery is allowing me to do um one thing that works for me today is working with another addict or an alcoholic period it keeps me sober one day at a time and the feeling that i get from helping somebody else replaces that feeling that i got from drugs and alcohol well it's been a great conversation i want to thank all three of you for coming into the studio and telling your story uh as we run up on 10 o'clock here on witf Thanks again to all our guests, Dr. Sarah Kawasaki, Director of Addiction Services with the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, Matthew Toth, who's in recovery, and Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. This has been a presentation of Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at health care. It's online at transforminghealth.org, and it's supported by Penn State Health and WellSpan Health. Remember, you can RSVP for our forum that's coming up on Thursday at 6 p.m. at transforminghealth.org.